Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Galatians, to Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, chapter 4 and verse 12. Galatians 4, 12. This morning as you're doing that, when God began to make clear that he was moving Melinda and myself towards full-time ministry in the career or vocational sense, and and I qualify it as such because I don't believe that there is such a thing as part-time ministry. Jesus' call to follow him isn't extended with options. It's not like Netflix where you can choose the online access only or online access plus one DVD mailed or online access plus two DVD mailed. I mean, so following and serving the Lord is an all or nothing deal. Be crucified with Christ. It's only full-time following and serving. There's no such thing as part-time. And so as Melinda and I began to sense God directing us towards a ministerial career, as many of you know, I began uh, or took a job at an elementary school in order to facilitate that transition. And it was quite a change for me on a number of levels. Most physically demanding was it began at 4.15 in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And so I had to get up at about 3 o'clock in order to be at work on time. Some of you, that's right around the time you're getting home from work, not for me. Now, at first, because of my personality, I was fired up by the prospect of new. I felt confident that God had called us to serve in our church and that this was his way of enabling us to do that. And so I was excited. I was also stoked because it meant that I was going to be seeing a time in the day that few others ever did. And, and I had only many years prior when I was in college and I was dating Melinda, and so I had been fueled by love. And so at that time, I was excited. I was excited by the thought of being up early, and I was also excited because at that point I had been and was very interested in all things military, and I'd read about the schedules that our servicemen kept, and so I was excited about sharing 0400 with these warriors of our nation, but can I tell you how quickly that enthusiasm to share those things died? It wilted like that vine over Jonah, and it didn't take a day, and it didn't need a scorching east wind either. There was little joy for me to be found in a 3 a.m. alarm going off as I crawled out of bed and crawled to the bathroom watching my wife, my lovely wife, sleep peacefully while I did not. All my joy and appreciation for how God was providing for us found itself standing, so to speak, in line at the customer service desk, wondering why I couldn't find divine provision at 8 a.m. Why couldn't even 7 a.m.? Why did my showers of blessing as are falling right now, why did they have to start at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was in that moment and in the many that recurred over the two years that I worked at that school that I was directed by God to remember just how excited I had felt when I started. How on that very first day, I don't think my alarm even woke me up because I was already anticipating it. And so on those days when I felt most dejected and was struggling to find strength to keep going, God reminded me of the beginning. And of those emotions that had fueled me then. Because emotions are fickle things, aren't they? Yeah, and friends, if we base what we do exclusively on how we feel, then few of us would stick with anything for very long. New Year's resolutions wouldn't be the laugh they are. Because every day's resolutions would share that same stigma. Which is why life cannot be governed solely by how we feel. At the same time, we are sentient beings, aren't we? 
And the emotions drive us. They, they serve as a significant impetus in the formation of our worldview. Therefore, we can't ignore them, but rather, I believe, we ought to allow those sentiments, those feelings, to, to with Scripture's oversight, drive us, direct us towards Christ. And that's what I believe the Apostle Paul is doing in the text that we're going to examine together this morning. Where having confronted, as we've seen together, the Galatians regarding their, their foolish wandering from the gospel, their falling back into the very trap of legalism from which they'd been free. Paul, as we've seen together, has appealed to their reason by means of a complex but cogent argument demonstrating how God's promise to Abraham was in fact restated by the law, which was then fulfilled completely by Christ, who then at the appointed time made his righteousness available to all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And it was in this act of grace that Galatians saw themselves as no, there was no performance of merit, no obedience that then obligated God to save them in this work of Christ. They simply believed in Christ's accomplished work on their behalf. It was a work promised to Abraham, as Paul pointed out, revealing the unchanging nature of God's gospel and the error of the apostles' opponents' message. And so Paul has appealed to the Galatians' minds. He now turns to their emotions as he calls them back to the day that they first came to faith. And is not prepared to read our text this morning. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 12. I'd like for us all to think back to that day, we who are Christ followers, think back to that day that you first came to faith, first came alive, how you felt in that moment, the way that the world looked as your heart's eyes were open to the beauty of the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and as you think about that day and today where you sit, consider how things may have changed, if they've changed. As I read this text, think back to that moment and to where you sit now and wonder why, if things have changed. So Paul writes, Galatians 4.12, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I preached first the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people who are zealous to win you over but for no good, what, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them it's fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Friends, notice first this morning the apostle's tone. I plead with you brothers. And I want us to see Paul's tone over his appeal because while there is some ambiguity in what the apostle desires the Galatians do, there's no question as to how he feels. I plead with you. This is how the NIV reads. If you have an ESV translation, it renders Paul's words as brothers, I entreat you. While the Holman version offers, I beg you, 
brothers. I beg you. In the original language of the New Testament, the term Paul used here, he used also when he wrote to the churches in Corinth, second time, chapter 5, verse 20, where he informed them, we implore, that's our term, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Elsewhere, this same term is used in the Gospels. This time, Dr. Luke used it when he described the actions of the leprous man who when he saw Jesus, Luke writes, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. That's our word. Begged him. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So what I believe is captured, conveyed by this word is a sentiment of rich, deep, sincere, almost desperate longing. This isn't mild concern or, or peaked interest. Paul's Feelings here aren't like those of your husband's wives who when asked to help after dinner to wash the dishes respond and I would hope all do. Ooh, please, may I? May I please? This is, this is more husbands like when your wife told you that her water had broken and it was time to head to the hospital for the birth of your child. It, there, was a, there was a very real demanding to this longing in this tone. It also reflects a dependence on the object that's being addressed. In the case of childbirth, if this was your experience as it was mine, you were the getaway driver. Not that you were going to get away from your wife, but you were going to get her away from where you were and quickly drive, as would a getaway driver drive, to the hospital. And if you didn't, you were going to get in trouble. You were the driver. Whereas in the case of the Galatians, it was Paul who was needing them to be reminded of all that they'd been taught. And thus he begs, he entreats, pleads that they become like him, for I became like you. Which, as I said, is somewhat ambiguous. However, most scholars believe Paul here is likely referring to his relationship with the law. His relationship with the law, whereas he explained when he wrote to the Corinthians, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Although I'm not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's law. But I became this way so as to win those not under the law. And so it seems in essence that Paul is pleading for the Galatians to be like him who had forsaken dependence upon the law for his justification before God because he'd become like the Galatian Gentiles who weren't using the law to begin with by means of their righteousness being before God being pursued. And so Paul is, is desperately trying to point these, this, find this common ground that he shares with these dear but erring friends. And church, I believe that we need to hear Paul's tone this morning because it reveals his heart and it reflects Christ's, who as he was preparing to enter Jerusalem amidst all the joy and celebration, Jesus wept. Seeing the city, Luke tells us, he wept over it and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And so staring out over Jerusalem, Jesus knew all that lay before that city's inhabitants. As, as God the Son, he could see the terrible heartache to come because these people did not believe the gospel and wept. Church, do we weep over the lost? Do our hearts break for those who don't know Christ? We should. And, and I would imagine that while we may not all shed tears, most of our hearts do ache for those that we know, friends and and family that don't care about faith in Christ? But what about our Galatians? Because don't, don't forget, here Paul's concern is for his faith family. That's brothers and sisters in Christ who've wandered. Do we share 
the apostles' tone as it pertains to those who belong to us, but whom we rarely see. Are our hearts broken by their absence and voiced by such absence indifference to attendance in worship? Do we see such apathy for what it actually is? And are we willing to emulate Paul who emulated Christ and to confront these dear ones, pleading with them? And I pray that we are, Emmanuel, and that we won't just allow our family to disconnect and then to disappear. But how, we might ask. You know, particularly in our culture, we might ask, you know, Andrew, I don't like confrontation. How do I, how do I even go about broaching the subject? Particularly since today, everything is personal. This is faith we're talking about. This is something people possess for themselves. It's not mine to step in and, and inquire as to what's going on. So how do I even broach the subject without it becoming weird when I ask where they've been and haven't been in worship for a while? How do I even ask what's been going on in their lives without making them defensive? Well, let's take our cue from the apostle and let's look at the apostle's reference where Paul reminds his readers, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And this illness, many believe to have been one and the same as, at least as far as the condition is concerned, to be one and the same as his thorn in the flesh. That's as it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It was this lingering physical weakness which apparently affected his eyes and was never fully alleviated despite the apostles pleading to that end. Christ's simple answer was, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And thus it seems that Paul's illness was the occasion for the Galatians' first exposure to the gospel, where despite the temptation or the trial that this malady was, Paul reminds them of how nobly they responded and that they didn't treat the apostle with contempt or scorn. Instead, they welcomed him as if he were an angel of God, as if he were Christ Jesus himself. And here it's likely Paul has in mind by these references, the, the, the scriptural portrayal of angelic purpose, namely that of bearing a divine message. And so what he's saying as he confronts these dear brothers and sisters is that the point at which they first heard the gospel, this is how they didn't allow his physical ailment to serve as a source of temptation, leading them to mock him and the message that he brought. Instead, they received his words as those sent by God for the salvation of their souls. So Paul points the Galatians. He references them back to their shared start in the gospel. And guys, as we seek to display a love for one another that mirrors that shown by the apostle for the Galatians, I believe that our shared experience of the gospel must be our starting point as well. Because this is where we all discover, discovered how broken and sin-sick we are. There's not a one of us who can look back to that moment as we seek to engage one another with the gospel. We can't look back to that moment when God opened our eyes to sin's offense and our hearts to his love as fully demonstrated in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Not a one of us can look back as we engage with one another and compare ourselves and say, well, I needed less grace than you. Whew. That's just not possible. We can't stand, church, at the foot of the cross and bicker about who was less sinful because Calvary's the great equalizer. Our sin put Christ on the cross. My sin, your sin, his death paid our debt, individual and collective, so that we might be set free. The debt was the same, 
And thus, if we find ourselves comparing, then we need to consider whether we actually ever experienced the gospel in the first place. The cross serves to remind us all of our need. And it should fill us with unspeakable joy. And if this joy is absent from our lives, then we need to follow the apostle again and ask his question. The apostle's question, which I believe is given us there, verse 15, where Paul writes, what has happened to all your joy? What has happened to your joy? That's how the NIV voices Paul's query. The ESV reads, if you have an ESV translation, what then has become of the blessing you felt? The Holman offers, what happened to this sense of blessing you had? Clearly, Paul could see what the Galatians could not. Their excitement for Christ was gone, or, or in the least, radically reduced. As one commentator explains, what Paul is describing here is probably the sense of joy and divine approval that the Galatians had when they believed Paul's gospel preaching and received the Holy Spirit. Now, parents, have you ever watched your children do this? We talked about it somewhat during our children's message, but lose their joy in a situation and become increasingly irritable with their siblings and with you. But when you ask them, what's, what's wrong? They immediately reply, and shortly, nothing. Why do you even ask? I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, right? And, and, and I'm sure to be honest, because my mom's here. You know, I've seen this with my children, but because I denigrate my brothers in abstentia this morning, I will confess that we often had this issue as well. It was not so much my issue, but it was theirs. <laughs> but it's true, right? I've seen this. I've watched my children wake up filled with excitement at what the day has before them. But then for some reason, another will wake, usually later than the first. And for some reason, their perspective differs. And they'll make a comment, just a subtle word that just sets off the other. And, and usually what happens is that joy that was possessed by the one dissipates like the morning mist. You know, where before there was a smile, now there's a frown. The twinkle that was in the other's eye has been extinguished and replaced by this dull, dark stare. You know, laughter, moments before the marked conversation is gone. And in its place is this biting sound of sarcasm as I speak to my sibling. Sharp edge of criticism as I look about the day. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can lose our joy? And how seemingly ignorant we can remain of that loss. So Paul asks the Galatians, what happened to all your joy? And church, I believe with this question, he reveals at least two things to his original readers, but then also to us this morning. With the first being joy, by this question, joy is the natural emotion of the believer. Where I'm using natural simply to mean common, as in every Christ follower should be marked by joy. We've seen Paul shocked by his friend's abandonment of the gospel. And I think he's equally surprised by now the absence of joy in these fellowships because this is the emotion that it ought to be defining for God's people. God's, their love for one another as reflected by this joy that they possess. And right here, and we're not going to try to build a theology of joy, but I want to give you a few biblical references so that we might establish the point unequivocally that God's people should be joyful. For example, first Psalm 4-7. David is under duress. The king cries to the Lord, declaring, You have filled my heart with greater joy 
than when their grain and new wine abound. You have filled my heart with greater joy than the lavish possessions that mark these who are surrounding me. In essence, the king, despite being under duress, notes that God has given him joy, greater than the physical provision that those who are around him had and who weren't facing hardships. So, God provides his people with joy, a first thought. To add to this then, Psalm 21.6, David once again sings and describes his joy because you, that's God, because you have granted him, this is the king, eternal blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. So David's joy wasn't dependent on circumstance. It was the provision of God resulting from his presence. And then there's the words of which I'm sure we're all familiar to the shepherds spoken or sung by the angels that's recorded by Luke in chapter 2. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great what? Joy. Joy. That will be for all the people. It's the announcement of God's son's birth. Jesus Christ's arrival. Just the arrival announcement brought joy. And so God provides his people with joy in his presence and by his person, the person, the second person of the Trinity. And then there's a promise. In John 16, 22, Jesus tells his disciples prior to his death and his resurrection, Jesus says, so you, so with you, now is your time of grief. He's about to be crucified. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. Reference to his pending resurrection. I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Church, in Jesus' defeat of death and gracious gift of himself to us through faith that we might be restored to relationship with God. In that gospel, we, he promises us joy forever. Are you filled with joy? And can you recall the joy, as we asked earlier, that you felt the moment you first believed? I was little, but I remember feeling changed, relieved, released, restored. And through the years, I've had moments in which those sentiments have been refreshed in a manner comparable to that first day. But more consistently, more consistently, I found my joy deepening daily as I grow in my appreciation for all that God has done for me in Christ Jesus. And this isn't a, a daily outlook that's devoid of concern and fear and uncertainty and worry at times, but it is a steadier sense of the reality in which I live. Joyous union with Christ. Are you filled with joy this morning? Because if you're a child of the King, you should be. But I said there's two realities that I believe Paul reveals here by that question. We've noted the first. The second is that the adversary wants to steal our joy. The adversary wants to steal your joy. Satan cannot stand joyful Christians. He desires nothing more than to make us fearful, depressed, disillusioned. Clearly, as evidenced by the Galatians, joy isn't something that's fixed in the sense that you just have it. 
And once you do, you, you have it forever. Nothing can affect it. At the same time, as we've just pointed out, joy isn't a gift that's given to certain Christians and not to others. Everyone. God provides it to all as experienced in his presence, rooted in his person, and promised by his son. And so we should all be joyful and on our guard because our adversary prowls, as James tells us, like a roaring lion looking to destroy us. To, to steal our joy. And if, if you're running low on joy this morning, let me just get practical for just a moment. If you're running low on joy, let me urge you to three things. It's not like these are the only three, but let me give you three. Three things. If you are on low on joy, first, spend time in God's presence. Spend time in God's presence. And we're doing that right now as God's people. Jesus declared in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three Come together in my name, there I am with them. And then elsewhere, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, chapter 10, verse 25, to not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the days approaching. Friends, we, we desperately need to be in God's presence so that we might be filled with joy. And it seems like a simple thing, doesn't it? So simple, but how often is this the most difficult thing? And how revealing when it comes to our heart's condition because we can't stand being with others who are joyful when we aren't, right? How hard is it to be around people who are happy when your heart is hard? Now, I still, I still get the shivers when I think of my teenage years and my dad used to burst into my room at 6 o'clock in the morning joyously there to wake me up, always singing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will what? Rejoice. We will rejoice and be what? Glad. Oh, may I just say that rejoicing and being glad were the last emotions that I felt like expressing in those moments. And why was that? It's because my heart wanted to be anywhere else. But there, I couldn't stand the fact that dad was somehow chipper at six, chipper. And it was all I could do not to lose it until the moment the man left. And then I felt better. Oh, I felt so much better until he sent in the dog. I mean, can you relate? Have you ever been in a foul mood with dark clouds? It's like you just seemed to follow you everywhere you went. And then you run into somebody who's just beaming. And it's like they poured salt in an open wound. And the more they expressed consternation for you, the more irritated you became. Guys, we, this is why we must be in God's presence. Because that's where our joy is found. And if you find it hard to do that, then we need to ask ourselves why. And then we need to be prepared to deal with what the Spirit reveals. Because if we're living in the light, then our lives will be marked by joy. But if not, and we're entertaining some sin, others' joy is only going to drive us away. So if we're short on joy, church, then we need to be spending time with God's people in his presence. Second, we need to study God's word. We need to study God's word in which he reveals his person because, as we noted a moment ago, this is where, this is where our joy is rooted. It's rooted in the person of God. Just the Apostle Paul says in one of my favorite verses, Philippians, rejoice in the who? Lord, not the day, not the opportunities, not you, but rejoice in the Lord. Always, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Church, we, when we examine the scriptures, we come to see the person of our God. 
and how his person evidences itself in the attributes of him speaking. He commands us. He makes promises to us. He knows our future. He has plans for our lives, plans which are for our good and for his glory. And that fills us with joy. That fills us with joy. So we need to read God's word. We need to study it together. We need to be in God's presence. We need to be reading God's word. And then third, we need to be memorizing God's promises. We need to be memorizing God's promises, such as Romans 8.28. We know that in what? All things. God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. Or Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life will appear. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Or Philippians 4.19. My God will meet what? All your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Or Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I won't sin against you. And we could go on, but we won't, because I think the point's been made. God's promises, church, bring us joy. Because in them we're reminded that he who is for us is greater than he that is in the world. 1 John 4.4. 4. So we've got no cause to fear. Why? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37. Are you struggling this morning? Struggling with joy? You know, maybe you found yourself in this last week facing a season, even, even weeks, a season of frustration. Hear Christ's promise this morning. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. No matter how low or alone you may feel, God is with you. And since he is the source of your joy, it doesn't matter what your life circumstances look like. You can be joyful because our God doesn't change like the shifting shadows, James tells us, 117. Nor can he lie, Titus 1, 2. Therefore, all he has promised will be just as he said. So, church, we can be joyful always. Pray continually give thanks in all circumstances why because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus 1 Thessalonians 5:17 Galatians the Galatians were abandoning the gospel so it is heartbreaking as evidenced by his tone Paul referenced their faith journey's beginning questioning this loss of joy before he voiced his concern the apostles' concern, which I believe is conveyed for us there, verse 19, where Paul writes these words. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. The apostle expresses his emotions here now by comparing them to a mother who's in the midst of labor, desperate to welcome her child's arrival, which for the Galatians, I believe, equates to Paul's desperation to see them brought into full conformity to Christ. That's the, the time when Christ would be formally or fully formed in them. It's that moment when their standing in Jesus would be so stabilized that they would no longer catch themselves being blown and, and here and there, tottering, so to speak, through the winds of false teaching. And I don't believe that this concern here is for the salvation 
of these men and women because Paul's already noted how they believed the gospel and were filled with joy. So this isn't an expression of doubt concerning their faith's authenticity, but rather this is the desire that Paul has to see these dear children grow in the faith into which they had been born and demonstrated when they were baptized in Christ and so clothed by Christ's righteousness. And church, this ought to be the concern that each and every one of us has for the other, particularly those who are in our faith family that have more recently come to be a part of us and joined us in this faith journey. Our hearts ought to long for these wrestling as did the apostle for them in prayer, exhorting them by God's word that Christ may grow up in them so that they, as they face our adversaries' efforts to steal their joy, which as we know will come, it won't cause them to doubt. They won't be shaken. Emmanuel, we who are mature, more mature in this faith journey, our hearts ought to be burdened for those newly birthed, using Paul's analogy there, that they grow to the point where Christ is formed in them. Because this is discipleship. This is, this is what Christ, Christian, the Christian life is about. It's a growing and a maturing in union with Christ. And we who are further down the road have a responsibility to look back, to encourage those who are behind us while we ourselves look forward to those who are ahead of us and find affirmation and edification. Because there's not, a, there's not a one of us who ever will be, is now or ever will be, beyond the need for encouragement and exhortation. So are you growing daily in your love of Christ and in your appreciation of all that you have been given in union with Him? And are, are you filled with joy this morning? And I pray that you can answer yes to both of those questions. But if you're this, here this morning and you can't, then as we stand in a moment, as we sing and close our time of worship, then I would encourage you to come and speak to me. I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you and answer any questions that you may have to that end. But Emmanuel, this morning, for we who are God's people here, if the Lord has brought to mind someone this morning who you haven't seen in a while, they haven't been in worship for some time, or you haven't seen them in worship for some time, these are family members who are absent, then I want to urge you, in light of all that we have seen, would you reach out to that person this week Ask them about their joy. Express your shared need for the gospel. Reference that in your own experience of it. And then voice your concern for their growth in the gospel. Because our adversary wants nothing more than to isolate us from one another. So that we might become discouraged and disillusioned. My grandfather shared a story. He was a pastor doing his rounds. And went to visit a, a member of the church that hadn't been in attendance in a while. It was cold. There was a fire going. They sat together and talked about these things as we've discussed. The joy shared in the gospel's life change in them. Their need for God's word. And as they talked, the man shared his excuses, which is what they were, not given in that terminology. But they were for having been absent. And quietly, the pastor just took a coal out of the fire, just nudged it to the side. And they continued talking. And as you can imagine, that coal slightly dimmed, dimmed, until eventually it was entirely extinguished. And at that point, pastor looked at the gentleman and didn't need to say a word. But a point had been made. 
as we separate ourselves from the body, we don't lose our salvation. But you will quickly lose your joy. And it will make coming back harder and harder because isolated from the fellowship of Christ's church, we cannot live this out. No matter how successful your past week was, no matter how horrible your past week was, we gather to remind each other of our need for Christ. Because without Him, not a one of us is anything. Because who is like our God? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise You. It's only right that we do, because who is like You? That You bring life and give us hope Fill us with joy. Lord, we appreciate it's something that only you could do, particularly in moments when our circumstances are so radically contrasting that emotion. The beauty of your word is that in it we find the promise of a joy found in you who never changes. A promise because you are God that will be fulfilled. Lord, and we know this we know this ourselves, but we are weak and we are prone to wander. And therefore, you have given us time such as this, calling us into your presence so that we might worship and in so doing, speak hope and encouragement to each other. We who have a more consistent felt joy with our moments, circumstance can more easily walk alongside those who have not. But God, would you guard us, we who have felt that way, from allowing those things to be where we source our joy and not you. Lord, and for those who in this past week or even as they look to the week to come find themselves just anxious, questioning where will this joy come from. Lord, I pray this morning we've been reminded that its source is in you. It's in you only. You alone, God, are our hope. Without you, we are, we are nothing. Father, we ask that this morning if there is any change that we need to make, God, as you've brought to mind things that we have, we have done that needs to be confessed, God, would you lead us to that end? Would you give us the courage? Thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. Lord, and may he be our source of joy, both now and forever. We ask in his name, amen.